Week seven. We've got two books to cover tonight. That may be the least amount of books we've dealt with in one night. I don't remember, but they're important books, critically important books. Well, it's come to my attention that sometimes we forget what we work through here on Thursday night, so I thought we should start with a little review. This is not on your worksheet, but these are things that you should know. And I've said you should know them, and I've asked you to memorize them, so I hope that maybe we can do this without looking back at notes from previous weeks. These are the timeline books. We'll count this a test for those of you that haven't been in school for a while, and we'll see how you do. These books that are listed here, there are 11 of them that I said are critical, and we will finish, Lord willing, all 11 of them by the time we're done tonight. If you can think through these 11 books, you can think through the entire Old Testament history. And then we're going to go and fill in. We've got so many prophetic books to deal with, and we've got the poetry books we're going to deal with. There's some exciting times ahead, but right now, I want to make sure we get the framework from Genesis all the way through Nehemiah. And so I want you to be able to know the book. I want you to know the concept. I want you to know the chapter that is critical. There's several critical chapters, but I want you to know what happens in that chapter. So that's simple enough, I think. So let's start without looking anywhere, but right up here into my eyeballs. The first book that advances the history of the Bible is, see, that's an easy one. And if I said you were to try and get that concept of Genesis boiled down into one word, what would that word be? That was less volume than the word Genesis, but I'll think it's at least 50%. So Genesis, beginnings. That's what the word Genesis means, beginnings. The beginnings of lots of things. But the key chapter that's important, if you had to pick one, there are several, but I would say you ought to remember the chapter number, no, not three, 12. Many of you said it, not as many of you has said other numbers, but 12. Okay, so I got Genesis, I got the main concept, beginnings, and the chapter is 12. What happened in chapter 12? The Abrahamic covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a promise. And what kind of promise was this? I mean, there were some agreements, certainly, that went back and forth, but primarily, this was an unconditional promise of God to Abraham and his descendants, and ultimately to bless the world. Genesis. The next book that is to advance the history of the Old Testament is... That didn't sound like everyone said that. The second book is Exodus. Very good. That's good. And if you were to boil down Exodus into one word that I'd have you memorize, it would be the word, see the word Exodus and try and translate it. If you were to look over the doorways and see the sign over there that says exit, we're on, we're on the right track here. An exit is a way to get out. Another word for that might be deliverance. Very good. Deliverance. And if I needed to pick a chapter that would really be the apex of the deliverance of God in that book, it would be chapter 12. Because in chapter 12, we have them exiting what country? Egypt. Very good. Keep keep going. Don't give up on me. Egypt. And who was leading them? Great. Great. Exodus, Moses, chapter 12. And what happened in chapter 12? They had something that God instituted, the first ceremony for them to institute throughout the history of Israel. It was a Ceremony called the Passover, right? So the first Passover in Egypt, chapter 12. And the Passover referred to what? What was being passed over? What, I mean, what was passing over them? The angel of death. And who was going to be killed if that blood was not on the doorpost? Firstborn. Okay. Genesis, Exodus, the third timeline book advancing the history of Israel is Numbers. Very good. It's not Leviticus. Leviticus is a supplemental book. Numbers is the book that we want to know. If you were to take the Book of Numbers, and you were to boil it down into one word that I asked you to memorize, it would be the word wanderings. Very good. What would the word be? Wanderings. Very good. Let's just see if we can do these again real quick. That means that every voice in the room will have these. 
first book is Genesis. If you, Genesis, if you were to boil down to that into one word, it would be? Beginnings. Beginnings. And the key chapter would be? 12. And what happened in chapter 12? <laughs> Very good. The next book would be Exodus. And the, ca- the main concept in one word would be? Deliverance. Deliverance. And the key chapter would be? 12. 12. And what happened in chapter 12? The first Passover. Where are the Ten Commandments, by the way? Chapter 20. Very good. So the next book is Numbers, the book of Numbers. And if you were to boil down that into one word, it would be wanderings. Who was wandering? Why were they wandering? They didn't believe God about the promise to do what? Enter into Canaan, the promised land. They sent in spies. How many spies did they send in? Twelve. How many came back and said, we can do this? Two. What were their names? Joshua and Caleb. Everyone at your table said that, right? The key chapter that we should know about this sad book would be chapter 14. Very good. Chapter 14. Something happened in chapter 14 that we just described, but there's a city involved, and we call it a blank of blank at this city. It is a test of what? Faith at what city? Kadesh, Barnea. That's right. The test of faith at Kadesh, Barnea. Numbers, wandering, chapter 14, test at Canis, the test of faith at Kadesh, Barnea. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers. What's the next book that advances the timeline, the history of, of the Old Testament? Wow, you're not very confident in that. Tell me again, what is it? Joshua. Joshua. You're sure about that, right? And if we were going to boil that down into one word that I said, remember this word, this one word that summarizes what happens in Joshua, you would say, you'd say the conquest. Some of you said it. And if we were going to pick a chapter that would be uh, really typifying what God is doing in this book by allowing the people of Israel to uh, take the land of Canaan, we would say that chapter would be, what would it be? Six. Six. That's correct. Six. What happens in chapter six? The battle of? Jericho. Why is that important? Because it's the biggest fortified city right in the center of the promised land. They divide and conquer. You start with Joshua and then they go to the north and the south in their campaigns. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua. What's the next book that advances the timeline of Israel? Judges. Very good. Now this is a happy book, right? No. Keyword is success, right? Keyword is failure. Very good. And uh, what chapter would that be that would help us uh, get a sense of when that failure and how that failure transpired? Chapter 2. Chapter 2, because it starts right out of the gate. They fall right on their face, right in the beginning of the book in chapter 2. And I said, if you were going to uh, summarize the book, because this happens throughout the book, we know what starts in chapter 2. It's called the cycle of judges. The cycle of sin begins. We have judges. What was the problem in the nation? What, what, what started this? What kind of sin was it? Mostly idolatry. And then what would happen? God would send what? Some other nation to dominate and oppress them. They would get very pained by all this. They would cry out to God. They'd ask for forgiveness and God would send them a a judge. A judge. Another word for judge would be deliverer. Very good. If you want a better word for judge, it'd be deliverer. Great. What's the next book that advances the timeline of Israel? What is it? You're not sure, are you? First Samuel. First Samuel, we would take the word to typify and to summarize all of First Samuel. We'd say the word is monarchy. Very good. I think some of you may have peeked at that. Monarchy. And if I were going to say, where did that monarchy start? What chapter would that be? That would be chapter 8. Very good, in chapter 8. And what happens in chapter 8? Let's be more specific. Saul becomes the king. Very good. Now, you know all these, right? We could just do these again and you would know them. Is that right? First... First book is Genesis. The key word is? Key chapter is? Happenings. Next book? Key concept? 
key chapter? 12. What happened there? Passover. Very good. Third book? Numbers. Main concept? Wanderings. What chapter? What happened there? Test of faith at Kadesh Barnea. Fourth book? Joshua. Key concept? Conquest. Key chapter? What happened in chapter 6? Very good. Fifth book? Judges. What's the word? Failure. What's the chapter? Two. What happened? Cycle of Judges begins. Sixth book? First Samuel. What's the key word? Monarchy. What's the chapter? Eight. What happened? Saul becomes the king. Very good. No, no, no. Here we go. There's a seventh book. And the seventh book is Second Samuel. And the key main concept in one word is it's a person's name. David. Very good. Key chapter. Super important chapter. Second Samuel chapter. It just rolls off your tongue. Second Samuel chapter seven. What happened in chapter seven? Super important. What is it? Davidic covenant. Very good. God makes a promise. And what's the promise in essence? You're going to be one dynasty, and that dynasty is going to culminate in the ultimate king, the Davidic king. We'll look at a passage that reinforces that tonight. Next book is, oh, I just gave it to you. First Kings, what's the key word? What happens in First Kings? Division. Chapter 12, it splits. Very good. And I just gave you what it is. What happens in chapter 12? Israel divides in two, splits in two. Next key book, Second Kings, what's the main concept? What is it? You said it. Captivity. What's the, now we have two chapters because we have two kingdoms. So we've got two chapters. What happens? What are the two chapters? 17 and 25. 17 and 25. And what takes place there? Easy. Which one falls first? North or south? North. Then the south. The north falls to what nation? Assyria. Very good. What year did that happen in? 721. Very good. The south falls to who? Babylon. Who's the king? Nebuchadnezzar. What year? 586. Very good. All right. Then we only have uh, two books left after the exile. Ezra and Nehemiah we're going to deal with tonight. But we didn't do the second page test, so let's make sure you can do that. <laughs> Seventh book is Second Samuel. Main concept? David. Key chapter? Seven. What happens in chapter seven? Davidic covenant. Very good. Eighth book is First Kings. Main concept? Division, chapter 12. What happened there? Israel splits in two. Ninth book, Second Kings, main concept. Captivity, two chapters. 1725, what happens? North and then the south fall. Then we have the Babylonian exile and Ezra and Nehemiah we're going to deal with tonight. Let's start with Ezra. Very good. Just happened to ask about that to someone who's been in Old Testament and they struggled with it just like you did. So I need to make sure you know it. Ezra. Let's talk about the authorship of Ezra. This may come as a surprise because the other books that have been collected together or pieced together or seen as one book have been First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. This is not a First and Second book, but it could be because it's just like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. Ezra and Nehemiah were once one book. They were collected as one book. They were represented as one book. They were kept as one book. They were discussed as one book, and just like those books, we can say, at least with some relative certainty, it seems like the end product looks like there was one person involved in all this, one primary person. 
But Ezra, in the book, certainly speaks in the first person. And so Ezra's first person memoirs in the book, clearly we know he is providing the information for what goes on in the book of Ezra. So let's say it this way, and I think this is fair to say it this way, that Ezra is the author and perhaps even the compiler and the ultimate author of both Ezra and Nehemiah. And I would... I can only say that like some of these books that we've dealt with, just based on the tradition of the church and the tradition of Judaism and the rabbis and just how it goes back as far as we can to people saying Ezra is responsible. One internal bit of evidence that we might have is from Ezra 7.11 that says Ezra was a priest. Not only a priest, he was the scribe. He was a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and the statutes, his statutes for Israel. So he's a scribe. Even that word appended to this man who now speaks in the first person in this book pretty good guess, even if you had no other evidence to say he must be the author of this book, and that is how it has been traditionally assigned, Ezra the author, Ezra, rather, the author of Ezra. Purpose of the book, we don't always have all these same headings, but this one I want to make clear because, though that you you could have a lot of unnecessary discussion about purpose in some books, because you could come at it from a million different angles, this seems very clear. It's not just history. It's the fulfillment of God's promise to reassemble the people Uh, Jeremiah was one of the prophets we'll be dealing with where we see so much of what we've set up as a framework in these 11 key books. We put these men now back in their positions in the writing of their prophecies, and he is in the middle of the downfall of the southern kingdom of Judah, and he writes this, God speaks through him, and says, moreover, I will banish them, Judah that is, banish from them rather the voice of mirth and the joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding, the millstone, the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, so God's got a particular time for this and as Jeremiah goes on to articulate, it was for every year they did not let the land lie fallow and they were supposed to do that every how many years? Seven years. And that's very hard for them because just like, you know, fast food places that don't want to leave the money sitting on the table, right? They want to keep, stay open all seven days. And we talk about Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A, not that this is a religious requirement for the church, but still you see it's an act of faith to say, I'm going to close my doors on a particular day. Imagine if you had to do that every seventh year as a farmer, Uh, that was a tremendous act of faith. And God said, I'll supply for you, but let the land lie follow. Well, they hadn't done that. And, and they had racked up 70 years that they did not, 70 years was the totality of every seven years that they did not let the land lie fallow. And God said, I'm going to get those years back. So after 70 years, I'm going to punish the king of Babylon. He's a wicked man. It was one of the things Habakkuk talks about when we get to him. How in the world can you use someone like Nebuchadnezzar, such a terrible man, to punish us? He's worse than us. How can he be a tool of discipline in our lives? He says, I'll punish king of Babylon, don't worry. That nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquities declares the Lord, but I'm going to use them to punish you. So there's a very specific timeline here in terms of God saying, I'm going to send you away for 70 years. Well, these books come obviously just in the right time to show us God keeps his promise and brings them back to the land just as he said. We could go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy to see the same kinds of promises. And we've talked about the Palestinian covenant. It's not aptly named, I suppose, but the land covenant it's usually called now. And you look at that land covenant and it says the same things. If you are disobedient to my, to my word, I'm going to send you away and kick you out of the land. If you repent, I'll bring you back. Now it gets very specific in Jeremiah's day. I'm going to bring you back after 70 years and I'm going to tie it to how many years you were not letting the land lie fallow. 
So God's faithfulness to his promises is key. You can go all the way back to, to, to Deuteronomy. And again, keep the time frames in view, would you? If you think about the promise of Deuteronomy saying, if you sin, I'm going to kick you out of the land. You can keep the deed to the land and it'll be your land. But once you get into the land, you will be kicked out of it for sin and idolatry or any kind of violations of my laws that are flagrant enough for me to warrant kicking you out of the land. So God is faithful to his promise. And think about the time frame. Uh, when, when was Deuteronomy written? Old Testament graduates? Give me a general time frame. Rough and dirty. When? Who wrote it? Moses did. Moses was, had some spare time on his hands around what time? When did they leave Egypt? 1445 BC. So soon after that, he leaves and he begins to write the initial book of Exodus. Remember? He did Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, number Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy comes at the end of the 40-year wanderings. So around 1405, we get Deuteronomy that is written. So now, advance the timeline, we're all the way now to the 6th century BC. So we've got hundreds of years since God made that promise. And then it gets very specific about the time frame and how many years it would be. God is a faithful God. He keeps his promises. If he says he's going to bring you back, he's going to bring you back. He even told them when. And he's also rich in mercy. When you think about the fact that God could have not set it up that way. God knew the sin that they were going to fall into. But he said, I'm going to bring you back. I'm not going to give up on you. And you're going to, you're going to seek me. And I'm going to let myself be found by you. And I'm going to bring you into the land. And God is a gracious God. And you need to remember that. We read the Bible and we think about our pain and our discipline. We think about Hebrews chapter 12. And, and we recognize God is a God who is rich in mercy even in our lives. Not only to save us, as Ephesians 2 says. That's where I get the phrase from. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. He, he saved us by grace. Even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. But when it comes to our discipline as well. God is a gracious God. And, and though he shows his discipline in our lives, he uh, is rich in mercy and restoring us. I should say this, though. There's clarity in Ezra and Nehemiah, and this is very clear, and in, in how the book is written, that this is not the restoration. So the restoration of the land of Israel is not the restoration. And that will make clear throughout these two books. Now you say, what are you talking about? Well, we're going to get into the prophets who are prophesying all along the descending and degenerating line of Judah and a couple in Israel, Hosea and Amos. But the rest, for the most part, except for the foreign prophets, they're going to be talking all about Judah and their sin. And when they do, they talk about restoration. I mean, Isaiah, some of you took our class on Sunday morning on Isaiah. How much information there is given about the great restoration that's coming? Well, you take all of those promises, then you look at what happened here when God brought them back into the land under Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel. You say, well, he's fulfilled his promise. He did fulfill his promise in that he'd bring them back into the land, but he did not restore them the way he said he would restore them. And that's why there's so many more promises that Jesus ties to the prophets that have yet to be fulfilled. So this is not the restoration. We can see that even within the writing of Ezra and Nehemiah. So I think that's a big part of the purpose of this. And a lot of things are added in the books that remind us, hey, this is not what God had promised. Think of the one promise. Think of the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant regarding a king. We come back and no one's called a king again. We have administrators. We have governors. We have people that are leading in various ways. We have the priests. We have the prophets. We don't have the king. So it can't be the restoration that Ezekiel talked about. It can't be the restoration that Isaiah talked about. We don't even have a monarch reigning on a throne. So uh, that's clear, not only by the absence of what's not there, but, but some of the things we'll look at that are there. That's the purpose, one of the purposes of the book. The structure of the book, little chart for you. We need to understand, just like there were 
three deportations when they left, starting in 605. We can talk about that in a minute. But we're now going to look at the three restorations as they come back. Uh, Almost 50,000 come back in the first return. So let's get this chart and fill this chart in. And if we can keep these things straight in our mind, along with the next chart, we can untangle a lot of things as we read through the book. And it's not easy, particularly Ezra, because Ezra does some things that are anachronistic. You know that word, anachronistic, out of, out of sequential order. We find that a lot in the writings of, of Hebrew literature, where if you follow it carefully, you'll catch what we're doing. It's like some of these shows that, you know, when I don't pay much attention, because I'm usually trying to read a book when Carlin's watching a movie, but I'll, when, I, when I start paying attention, I'll say, is this a flashback? Because you've got to pay attention to know what the timeline is. And in a lot of Hebrew literature, it's that way. There's a theory, not a theory, there's a literary, as we said in Genesis, a practice of, in Jewish literature of recapitulation. That's a big part of telling a story, then retelling a story and drilling down more uh, deeply into the story. But in this case, he does some forecasting, and we'll see that and understand it. Nevertheless, let's, let's figure these out. We have three leaders, and really, you could have broken down Ezra and Nehemiah into three books because it clearly breaks down into the, under three leaderships and three returns. And thankfully, we didn't break it down that way because the first book on the list would be called Zerubbabel, and you probably don't want a book in the Bible that you have to say that looks like that, Zerubbabel. And we have some hard ones. I shouldn't say that. But this is a name, by the way, that is a name that was given in exile. It really means to be born in Babylon. So it's not a book I'm sure they wanted to break into a third book, but you could have. The next return comes in under Ezra's leadership. And he's got a lot less that come back with him. I forget the number. Seven, 5,000, 7,000? I don't recall. 1,500 could be a small number. I have to look it up. And then the third return is under Nehemiah. So we're used to saying Ezra, Nehemiah, but really you could break the book down under Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. And we'll look at those. They come in three distinct returns to the land. 538 is the first return under Zerubbabel. We'll, we'll sort this all out as we move through the book a little bit and think through it. The next return comes under Ezra in 458. In 458. The last one comes, and this is a, this is a number you can and should memorize, is 444, the, the return under Nehemiah. So that's when things start to get settled in this intertestamental period in, in 444 and Nehemiah's return. The text is Ezra 1 through 6, Ezra 7 through 10, and Nehemiah 1 through 13. And those could be three distinct books because they're very distinct in terms of them recording. Ezra, we are assuming, compiling and recording, although Nehemiah does a lot of first-person narrative as well in Nehemiah. But Ezra talking about the first return, the second return, and the third return. Just like there were three deportations. 605 was the first one, 597, and then you know the last one. When was the last deportation? 586, right? That's when the nation ended. So we had kings even in between the first deportation, 605, 597, 586. And by the way, I guess I should take a minute to talk about where's the 70 years. Because you could take 605, 597, 586, 538, 538, 458, and 444 and try and harmonize all those numbers and go, none of them equal 70. The way this was understood and the way people looked at this was the captivity started basically when the first king under the thumb of of Nebuchadnezzar became a vassal, basically, and was taxed. So they ended their freedom that day. And that started in the first deportation in 605. The temple wasn't destroyed yet, but basically they were under the hand of the Babylonians. Just like in the New Testament, we always remind you that the New Testament Jews were under the hand of, of Rome. So 605 is when it starts. 
70 years from 605 is 538. And in 538, that's right in the middle of the first return in 536. Because it ends at the Feast of Tabernacles. And because of when the fall was, and I forget, not the fall, but the first deportation in 605, we have in the Jewish reckoning, just like the three-day resurrection. And I can give you an article on this while that's the, the 70 years. It begins with the first taxation and the deportation, 605, and ends with the celebration of, of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's the 70 years. The Persian king. There's a Persian king that plays into this, and I'll give you all the Persian kings in a minute that come into the biblical story. But let's start with this one, Cyrus the First. Cyrus the First, he's also called Cyrus the Great. And he's the one that the first return comes under, the decree of Cyrus to allow Zerubbabel and the majority of the captives to go back from Babylon. They still call it that, by the way. Matter of fact, you'll, you'll hear, you'll read in the scripture in Ezra and Nehemiah, Cyrus the king of Babylon. And you'll say, wait a minute, he's a Persian king. He is a Persian king, but when he conquered the Babylonians, he takes charge of all of the Babylonian kingdom. So he's called that, I think, on three or four occasions in these post-exilic books. Nevertheless, he's a Persian king, the king of Persia, I guess you could say, and the Medes, Medo-Persia. Nevertheless, the Persian king Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. Artaxerxes is the king that then allows Ezra to go back and gives the decree for Ezra to return. We'll talk about that in a minute. And we still have Artaxerxes giving Nehemiah the green light to go back, and we'll talk about that as he comes back. Oh, I'll, I'll do it under the decree. I'll distinguish them. The first decree to return is to rebuild the temple. The temple to be rebuilt, that's the decree that comes from Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the First, to Zerubbabel, who leads and comes back. He's the governor. He's not a king, but he leads the building project as it gets started and basically ends with an altar and not a lot else because the work is stopped. Ezra, though, though he comes back with a lot less people, he brings a lot more money, and that was important, and there was a lot of politics going on. We'll touch on some of that when he comes back to complete the temple, and he does in chapter 6. And then Nehemiah comes back to rebuild the walls. And Artaxerxes had been convinced that the Israelites rebuilding the temple, they were also busy rebuilding the wall and the city itself, not just the temple. And he got complaints about it. And because of that, he stopped the rebuilding. And Nehemiah, many of you know that story, but we'll look at it tonight. He ends up pitching the the project again. And he does go back after some setbacks on the rebuilding of the city under Ezra. Because the focus, of course, was on the temple. Those are the three we're going to examine tonight. Ezra, the time frame for all of this. This may not be a clean chart, but I tried to put the decades here. And then I want to start by just putting the Persian kings. Because you know all of them, probably but one of them. Because they're all mentioned in the Bible, except for the second one. Because nothing happens biblically during this period and the building had been stopped. So let's start with Cyrus the Great. And as long as we're talking about Cyrus the Great... Cyrus, there's a lot of things in the British Museum, but this is one in the British Museum called the Cyrus Cylinder that's there. If next time you're in London and go to the British Museum, it not only includes his description in this cuneiform cylinder that, that reads in these columns, not only does it describe him winning the, the battle over the Babylonians and taking over the empire, but it also speaks of some, some of the secularists even call it the first like human rights declaration because he shows his concern about allowing his prisoners to go back and restore their cities and rebuild their temples, which of course is exactly what he does. There's a great harmony between the Cyrus cylinder in the British Museum and what the Bible says because the Bible is telling us the Jews were the recipient of that. I mean, they were slaves by the preceding administration, if you will, 
and, and now he takes over. He has these Jews in his, in his kingdom and he allows them to go back. Well, he writes about how magnanimous he is in, in doing that on the Cyrus cylinder for what it's worth. Anyway, I just thought I'd show you a picture of that. Cyrus then uh, hit the next king in, in Persia is Cambyses. And Cambyses is a, a name you probably didn't have to learn in your Sunday school classes because we don't have any rebuilding going on during this. And basically he's skipped over. And the time gap is there perfectly in the biblical chronology. And you can look them all up on Wikipedia or your Encyclopedia Britannica's and you'll see it fits just exactly where it ought to according to the biblical chronology and all the secular history fits just perfectly. Try doing that with the Book of Mormon, by the way. That's another story, but you can't write fiction and have it match up with every archaeological discovery since the writing of that book. Here's one you know, Darius, Darius the king. Darius is the next Persian king, and as we go back and we'll look at Ezra, we'll look at Nehemiah, we'll look at the minor prophets, uh, the post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, we'll see other uh, references. We're going to look at Esther eventually and see how she fits into all of these Persian kings, because after Babylon, after Assyria, Babylon, after Babylon, the Persians. The next king, and he spans those decades right there, is Xerxes. Now, this gets a little confusing because it sounds a lot like Artaxerxes, but it's a different guy. <laughs> it's not the same. This is actually Xerxes the first, and if you were to keep going in history, you'd find more Xerxes and more Artaxerxes. But the Xerxes and Artaxerxes that we deal with are the first. There's another name that we find in the Bible, Ahasuerus, and Ahasuerus, that's his other name. So that's the same guy. Whenever you see Ahasuerus and you see Xerxes, it's the same it's the same king. And we'll line that up with some biblical happenings here in a second. And then we have Artaxerxes. And he has a long reign, Artaxerxes does, from 464. I didn't give you the detailed numbers, but you can see I tried to put it there in the middle of the 460s. He reigns all the way to 424 BC. So he has a long reign. And that's why I put an arrow and I didn't put a line in the bottom of that box because his reign continues on past my little decade chart. All right, let's figure out what goes on here with the biblical story of Ezra. The temple project begins in 538 with the decree from Cyrus. And who's leading that? You know this now. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel sent back. He comes with a majority of people, but not enough money. And he gets a lot of opposition, as we'll learn. Then in 536, it doesn't take long. In two years, the temple project stops and it comes to a halt. And it stays at a halt all through Cambyses' reign as the Persian king. And I try to give you arrows there. It's not a very clean chart, but to point at where it is on the timeline. In 520, the temple project resumes, and we have the rebuilding begins again. And then in 515, the temple is completed, and you would know what chapter, although we haven't gotten to the key chapter yet, but you know what chapter it is, chapter 6. The temple is completed in 515. So that's key date too. Now, these general lines are going throughout because they represent a lot of different events that go on that Ezra chapter 4 verse 6 talks about. And this is a little bit tricky because, as I said, in Ezra chapter 4, we have a preview, a forecast of what's going to happen. Chapter 6, we know, is in 515. And if you know chapter 6 is the completion of the temple in 515, then we're going back to chapter 4 and we're seeing something further down on the timeline? Yes, because that's what happens. He begins to talk about things that are going to happen during Xerxes' reign and Artaxerxes' reign. So both those kings are mentioned, Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes, and it speaks of all the opposition that goes on there. And then it ends with the crowning of the achievement of building the temple in 515. So that's out of order. If you follow that, I've tried to make a big deal out of that because that's confusing when we read it in our annual Bible reading every year. 
Then we have opposition during Artaxerxes, and we've got a lot going on there, and we'll get into that. It bleeds into Nehemiah, which is filled with opposition, and those you, you know because they're pretty famous stories of the opposition that Nehemiah faces when he tries to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. All right, did you get all that? And the tricky thing there, and the reason I want to put those chapter, those verses down is because in Ezra, I, Ezra 4, we have all of that, and here's what happens. Speaking of opposition, here's what happens under Xerxes, Ahasuerus, and under Artaxerxes. And then we get back to the story of finishing up the temple. So that's anachronistic. It's not in chronological order. Okay, main concept of the book, I guess I could have put this up front because we already had to talk about it, is the temple. Temple. And, of course, the key chapter is chapter 6 because that's when the temple foundation is laid. There's an altar set up and sacrifices resume. All right. Did you get that? No? That's easy. That was on the chart in our very first week. Okay. Let's talk about the tribes of Israel. I had some questions about this, and I thought it would be worth going back and at least giving a little attention to this. Ten tribes of the north fall to Assyria in, in 721. I want to make clear they're conquered, they're not lost. We call them sometimes, I don't call them this, but sometimes, maybe I have called them this, I don't know. I have a lot of talking on tape. You might find someone, some point when I said this. But try not to talk about the lost tribes of Israel because they're certainly not lost, and I'm trying to prove this to you right now. Yeah, they're conquered. Some of them, as you know, intermarry with the Assyrians and other nations, and they create this group of people that are at great hostility in Jesus' day with the Jews of the south, with the Jews of Judea, to those that are called Israel in the first century. And they're called the Samaritans. The Samaritans came out of the fall of the northern tribes after the Assyrians conquered them. So in that sense, you could say, well, aren't they lost in that regard? Well, they are kind of, I suppose, in that the Jews hated them because they were intermarried, intermingled. They'd taken the valued blood of Abraham and and intermingled them with the nation. So they despised the Samaritans. But you need to know this, and this is important. A lot of the northerners, with their tribal identities, they migrated to the, to the southern kingdom at three big points in biblical history. One was at the division. The division of the kingdom in 1 Kings chapter 12 with the Rehoboam-Jeroboam split. When Rehoboam, the grandson of David, but the son of Solomon, but he's of the line of David, he, if, the, if you're a, a northerner, you're from the northern tribe, you know that's the tribe that matters as it relates to the promises of God. The scepter, it says in Genesis, is not going to depart from Judah. So if we have a Judean king in Jerusalem, we had people from Naphtali, Manasseh, Reuben say, I'm going to go down to the southern kingdom. Now we say Benjamin and Judah were in the south, and that's true. But we also had a migration at the division. That's one point where it happened. Obviously not everybody. During Asa's reforms, in Second Chronicles chapter 15, the Bible says we have more southerners coming to the south. Remember, we had 40 kings in the south and 40 kings in the north. 40 kings in the north didn't take very long for us to work through those 40 kings in the north. They were all bad. There were several dynasties, and they kept killing each other, and they were so evil and wicked that sometimes you got to a place when there were bright spots, like in Asa's reforms, that people who were in the north, who were left in the north, would come down and join the southerners. And at the fall, when Assyria in 721 took the north, a lot of people said, I'm going to go down to my estranged brothers in the south, to Judah, and I'm going to assimilate with them. And I say chapters 30 and 34 because it happened in Hezekiah's reign and it happened in Josiah's reign. And even in looking at those names, Asa, Hezekiah, Josiah, we were able to say, here are some of the good kings of the south. We had a lot of bad kings of the south. 
I mean, it's interesting that at the bright spots, when you had these good and godly kings, these reformers, that's when some of the people in the north who loved God said, I'm, I need to get back down south. And when the nation fell apart anyway, and the Assyrians were taking over, they said, I'll seek safety and refuge in the southern kingdom. Okay, now Ezekiel, remember our initial chart. That is a exilic prophet. What does that mean? He's prophesying during the Babylonian captivity. Look at this statement. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here in this vision he has. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. Now, during this period of time, you're calling the house of Israel the northerners, not the southerners. So even in the exilic period, and we've had from 721, now we're in the middle of the 6th century BC, you've got over 150 years, this period of time, and now you've got Ezekiel ministering during the Babylonian captivity to northerners. He sticks around in the promised land while Daniel is out in Babylonian, in the Babylonian kingdom. I'll do it this way for you. He's over out east in Babylon. Ezekiel's in the promised land. He's ministering to the people in this ravaged nation. And now the Bible's saying, oh, you got some people to speak here to in the north. Go speak to the house of Israel. In Ezra 2, Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, carried carried captive to Babylonia. And we say, of course, I get that. They returned to Jerusalem and and to Judah, each to his own town. And then we start a list in this chapter. And you get examples. I'm just give you one here. The men of Bethel and the men of Ai. And if we'd already had a good biblical geography course, we'd know, oh, wait a minute. Those are not towns of Judah. Those are towns of Israel of the north, of Joseph, of Ephraim. So we've got examples here of even Ezra during the return, coming back, the restoration after the captivity, referring to towns being resettled by people that are apparently not of the tribe of Judah or Benjamin or the assimilated Simeonites. So that, that's an example. Ezra six seventeen, at the dedication of the house of God in Jerusalem. They offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, as a sin offering for all of Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Now we're rededicating the temple in the sixth chapter. That's the crowning highlight of the book, chapter six. And we're sacrificing and we're representing all the 12 tribes of Israel. That's unique. That's interesting. It certainly gives us a sense that we don't have 12 lost tribes. They're not there in large numbers, but we're resettling some of their land, their cities. They're coming from those tribes and they're resettling. In the next chapter, chapter seven. In Ezra's day, they went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king and some of the people of Israel, there it is, and some of the priests and the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. Okay, so these people are going to Jerusalem and he names them, first of all, Israel, priests and Levites. Of course, the priests are Levites and Levites aren't from Judah. And we've already said, well, there's the exception. We said that when we talked about the split of the kingdom, of course, you've got Levites who are not from the tribe of Judah that are in the South, but he adds here some of the people of Israel. So we have Israel coming back. That's the northerners along with the priests and the Levites. Zechariah, this of course is a prophet. We'll look at Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi as post-exilic prophets. They are ministering during Ezra and Nehemiah. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. I get Judah and Jerusalem, the capital, and the tribe, the southern kingdom. So I got the kingdom and I got the city. But now you're adding Israel. And so here is this concern in the post-exilic period about people from the north. And then in the New Testament, I mentioned this, but I thought I'd put it on the screen. You've got examples like this. There was a prophetess, Anna. This is on the Temple Mount again. We have when Jesus is coming and going through the Levitical law regarding his birth. 
and being circumcised. And here's a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. That's a northern tribe. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. So you've got northerners knowing exactly what tribe they're from. We can go even further. Some people would take this as a, not a literal statement. I believe it's a literal statement in James chapter 1 when it says James is writing to these Christians who are of Jewish descent. And of course, James is certainly of Jewish descent. And he's writing to the Jews. And he says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, the dispersion, of course, is taking place when you have all the Jews kicked out of Israel in 70 AD when you have Titus, the Roman emperor, coming through. And he's talking as though the 12 tribes know their lineage. And then I know when the end of time comes and we see this happen, God certainly knows the identity of all those in the 12 tribes. Revelation 7, 4 through 6, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, from Gad, from Asher, from Naphtali, from Manasseh, and the list goes on, minus Dan and adding Joseph into this to get the 12. But the point is, 12 tribes of Israel playing out in the last times. One more the ultimate, ultimate restoration. Zechariah 10, 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. South, north. Joseph, Ephraim. Remember I said these were synonyms for the northern tribe. I will strengthen the house of Judah, the south, the kingdom, and I will save the house of Joseph, the north, the kingdom. And I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. So God is going to restore them and they shall be as though I had not rejected them for I am the Lord, their God, and I will answer them. Or the one I love the most in Ezekiel 37. This is the dry bones prophecy. Remember that? The dry bones? You remember the song at least, right? Dry, dry bones, dry bones, dem dry bones. Ezekiel 37. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. And take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim. That's the parenthetical statement in the scripture, not my parenthetical statement, and all the house of Israel associated with him. Now think about it. Israel is the word for all of them in this passage, the prophetic passage, and you've got Judah, you've got a stick for Judah, and you've got a stick for Ephraim, a stick for Joseph, and all of the people associated with them, and join them one to another in one stick, and they shall become one in your hand. And then it goes on to say later in that prophecy, and then my servant David will be king over them, which again, in the post-exilic books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we don't have a king. So I know that whatever you know, interesting reading I have about the northern tribes in Ezra and Nehemiah, we don't have this happening. So the ultimate restoration of the north and the south is coming. Actually, it starts to come there in the book of Revelation when we have all these 12 tribes represented as missionaries who are Messianic Jews at that point, come to Christ and win that last generation, as Romans 9, 10, and 11 says. So This is great. And what's going to happen? They're going to be obedient. They're going to walk in my rules, be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I give, that I gave rather to my servant Jacob. When your fathers live, they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And again, that is just an appellation, a title for the son of David, the ultimate king, not the resurrected David. This is Jesus Christ. So we have all the 12 tribes just to give us some clarity about that. Outline of the book, very simple. I've already given you the breakdown. We know that in Ezra, I got two returns. Zerubbabel's return, and I got in that the restoration of the temple, at least the basics of the foundation of the temple and an altar that's set up and it's ready for worship, though it doesn't look very good at that point. And I got Ezra's return, chapter seven through 10, chapter seven through 10. And that is the reformation of the people. The people now start to get kind of their relationship with God into high gear. They move in that direction at least. So the outline, Zerubbabel's return, Ezra's return. Two very distinct sections. The first return, the second return. And Nehemiah gives us the third return. Got it? Not yet. Zerubbabel, 
Ezra, restoration of the temple, and the reformation of the people. Just a word about Zerubbabel's temple. For all that we can ascertain about budgets, about what they built, about what they said within the documents when they built it, we've got a very crude, rudimentary structure that is passing as the temple. And I've given you at least one artist's rendering of the temple. And we have the altar. And it's a very simple, non-ornate building. You remember what Solomon's temple looked like. It was gilded. It was out of the columns. It was the, the sea and the, the, the altar and, and the steps and the gold and the horns. All of it is magnificent. And then what we've got is Zerubbabel's temple. And that Zerubbabel's temple, which we now call the second temple, and we start the period of the second temple, Judaism we call it, when we have Jews worshiping around the temple, at least at this particular point in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we've got a a very simple building, Zerubbabel's temple. This particular temple was not what was prophesied. And again, I'm going to point this out when we deal with the prophets, and I'm going to emphasize it every time I get a chance, because the promises in the prophets as the degeneration of Judah is going down toward captivity is here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. And a lot of people will say, well, it happened when Ezra and Nehemiah came back and they set up the temple. There's no king. It certainly didn't match the very specific prophecies that regard the temple. For instance, as I tried to show you a picture, I think it was a different picture last time. When it comes to the actual measurements and layout of Ezekiel's temple, for instance, the temple that was promised to be rebuilt, here's Zerubbabel's temple. It's nothing compared to the elaborate scheme that is laid out in Ezekiel for what the temple would be. So you either have to, you have to somehow allegorize all of those promises, or you've got to say, what happened in the post-exilic period? That didn't happen. And you could even take, as I showed you the footprint, I didn't repeat that. I guess I could have cut and pasted those slides back. If you took Herod's refurbished temple, when he took Zerubbabel's temple and put all that money into it in the first century BC, you still wouldn't have anything close to what Ezekiel had prophesied. So as we're heading toward captivity, and we'll look at those prophets, what they said was going to happen after the captivity didn't happen. It was not the restoration that was spoken of. It was just something that kept God's promise, but we're on our way to ultimate fulfillment. And you may remember the story, they weep in the book of Ezra, that the, temp, that the old men who saw the previous temple, the old couples that saw the previous temple, saw the new temple and they wept because it lacked the glory of Solomon's temple. Not to mention what they might have read or heard Ezekiel preach about when it comes to the temple that would be constructed. A couple of things we learned from this book. Something about how important this building project was to God. It was important because God said, here is the symbol of my blessing upon my people. As humble as this was compared to Solomon's, as humble as it would be compared to Herod's, and as humble as it ultimately is next to the comparison of Ezekiel's temple, when it comes to this building project, it is important. And it is so important, I'm going to do something, as God often does. I'm going to flip around the logic of what anyone else would do, and I'm going to do it my way in my sequence. And if you're going to go back and construct, uh, reconstruct a city, and you're going to have a worship center in it, you might want to put doors and locks on your house before you bring in this magnificent centerpiece into your home. But that's not how God does it. God does not rebuild the walls. He rebuilds the temple first. And if you're ever wondering, just the basic, simple priorities of God, spiritual things first, always spiritual things first. And when it comes to the worship of God, he says, I want my temple built before we worry about the walls. 
I mean, this comes 30, 40, 50 years later, we get the walls being built when it comes to the sequence of how that's all reconstructed, not just the initial planning of the walls and the initial building of the walls, but when you get the city established, you've got decades between him setting up his temple. And by the way, temple completion before your houses get add-ons and and paneled. You know this passage in Haggai chapter one, verses four through six? And again, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last three prophets in the Old Testament, these are post-exilic prophets. Those ministries, as we look at those when we get to them, we're gonna see them overlap. All this information we're dealing with tonight in Ezra and Nehemiah, they're all ministering during this period of time. So Haggai, who's mentioned in these books, speaks words like this to the people. He says, guys, is it, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? You're sure putting a lot of work into your new houses. You've come back from Babylon and you're working hard, getting your yard looking good and all looking great. While this house, speaking of his house, the temple lies in ruins. I mean, he's not done yet. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. And he goes on to talk about the discipline of the Lord on people who didn't prioritize the temple over their own homes. I mean, that's just a great principle for us to keep in mind when you read a book like the book of Ezra. It's always church before politics, if you will. It's always spiritual things before material things. It's always, you know, prayer before doctor's visits. It's all, you see what I'm saying? It's always God comes before these things. And when it comes even to the priorities of, do I build this temple, this worship center out, or do I worry about building my house out? God says, listen, you got to have a place to sleep tonight, build your house. But before you start putting panels on your house, let's finish God's house, the priority of God's house the priority building project here of Ezra. Ezra's reforms. One of the great things I love about Ezra and Nehemiah is the way the hand of the Lord is described. It's a great idiom. We see it both in Ezra and Nehemiah, more in Ezra than we do in Nehemiah, but it's one of those linguistic links between the two books that make you think that ultimately we've got some, some commonality between these two books. It's not a phrase we get a lot in the Bible. We get a lot of it right here in the post-exilic period. Ezra 7, verse 6, for instance. The king granted him all that he asked for because, I love this, the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Like, now you're right there in the center of my will doing what I want you to do. Ezra 7, 6. A couple verses later. And he began to go up. They began to go up from Babylonia for the good hand of God was on him. So God was leading them back as they left from Babylonia. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered up leading men from Israel to go with me. So my recruiting was successful because God's hand was upon me. Ezra 8, 18. By the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion. Even my staffing, you know, I had I needed someone for this and look, God's good hand was upon me because look at what God provided in this particular person. I mean, just great themes. You could take your concordance and just see that theme of God being upon these people in that that idiom of the hand of God guiding these people. Clearly the providence of God and they recognize it as such and that's an encouraging thing. The role of scripture in Ezra's reforms. Clearly Ezra comes back in the second half of this book, God's hand was upon him and he saw success in what he was doing with the finances, with the people, with the building, with the people's hearts being turned back to God because God's hand, the providence of God, but then the means and the mechanism was the scripture. Ezra chapter seven, verses nine and 10 Look at this. I quoted this already in verse 9, but look what comes next. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set in his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules. I mean, we always want the hand of the Lord to be upon us. But I love the concept and connection here of it was on him because he'd purposed in his heart. He'd resolved in his heart. He had set his heart to study God's word. 
It's like the Bible says, you want to approve and know what the will of God is, the good and perfect will of God, well then what you need to be is not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is the Bible in your life? What is your relationship to the Bible? That is key. I mean, you want God to guide and govern and you want your hiring or you want your success, you want your thing to be in the middle of God's will. It it really comes down to whether or not you're going to set your heart on God's truth, the role of scripture. The book ends very, almost in a disturbing way, with this problem of intermarriage, the problem of intermarriage. If you read in your annual Bible reading every year, you get to the end of Ezra. It seems like a pretty positive book, at least a lot of it, because we're getting things done. God is keeping his promises. Good hand of God is upon the people that are leading this restoration process. And then at the end, you have this really terrible situation where Ezra is pained and the people are standing before him with with these marriages that have been prohibited. They've been prohibited way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. And it says, you shall not intermarry with them. You're going to go into the land. This is at the end, remember, 1405. You've got the end of this wandering period. And he's writing this second law, the second, the kind of the commentary on the law. And he says, when you go into the land, make sure you're not intermarrying with them, giving your daughters to their sons and taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And he goes on to say, and if that happens, then I'm going to have to discipline them. And you don't want that. So it's all about those relationships. Now, some, I guess, that are ignorant would read the text of Scripture regarding Israel's intermarrying prohibitions and see this as a, an ethnic or a national prohibition. It has nothing to do with what the Bible has to say. It's always a spiritual issue because anybody from any other nation, as it says when they came out of Egypt, can join Israel. And it talks about the mixed multitudes. Remember when I pointed, out, pointed that out for you in, in Exodus? I could be from Egypt and join in with the Israelites if God was going to be my God, and I would be called a proselyte at that point, but I'm a full-functioning member of that community, and that is not an issue. This is not a, a uh, as the world would call it, a racial issue. It's not, from our perspective, an ethnic issue. This is, an, this is a spiritual issue, and it's concerned about whose God is your God, and I can't date you or think about marrying you unless your God is my God. That's what this is about. So this was the prohibition from the beginning. And this is what Ezra runs into at the end of the book of Ezra. He runs into a problem of people who had intermarried during this period of time. And they got to figure out what to do about it. Well, here was their solution in chapter 10 of Ezra, the last chapter of the book. Shechaniah is the man here who comes to Ezra and confesses for the people. And Shechaniah says, we have married foreign women. And he talks about them, people from the land. And yet he says, I think there's hope for us still. In spite of it, how come? What are we going to do about it? Well, therefore, here's what I'm suggesting, and here's what he says. Let's make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord. You see that with a small L on it. Okay, so he received that counsel from someone. Maybe he's even attributing that to Ezra, as some commentators believe. Of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, I want to keep the rules. I want to do what's right. Deuteronomy says I can't marry foreign women. Let it be done according to the law. According to the law. Yeah, the certificate of divorce. Let's let it be done according to that. Now, a lot of people will say, what's going on here with this? If this is an issue of breaking the law, and yet they've entered into a valid marriage with people, it doesn't seem like that would validate what we see in Scripture in the consistent interpretation of the concept. I should say consistent within biblical framework, not a rabbinic framework, but knowing that the certificate of divorce was for the hardness of heart, the unrepentant sin as it related to the sexual covenant between a man and a wife. 
how in the world then are you coming up with this? Well, a lot of people would say, this wasn't God's idea. This is not what God wanted. And they would add to that evidence the fact that Malachi, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, those are the post-exilic prophets, talks about the issue of divorce and how much God hates divorce. And yet here their solution is, let's divorce our wives. And Shechaniah comes to Ezra and says, that's what I think we ought to do. And let's do it according to the rules of the Bible because there's a rule about being able to divorce a wife. And some people would say, well, wait a minute. That's not the reason for divorcing your wife. Let me just get that in your mind. And let's go to where people are going to go when they look at a passage like this and say, well, I married the wrong person. Let's divorce them. And if you're going to make the parallel, not between ethnicities, which the Bible would never give us that indication or suggestion, but if this has to do with spiritual foundations, well, I know there's a passage about spiritual foundations in the Bible. And let's Make the connection. Well, what does it say? Well, there is a passage about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. And it says, any brother who has a wife who's an unbeliever ought to do like Shechaniah and divorce them according to the law of the Lord. No. If that woman is willing to live with you, see, he should not divorce her. Or if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents and is willing and agrees to live with her, she should not divorce him. So we have an exactly opposite command here if the point was this spiritual mismatched foundation. So this is a troubling passage for people to figure out what are we to take away from Ezra chapter 10. And I think one thing you may take away is you're going to have to work hard to draw a connected line between God's directive and Shechaniah's advice as to what he thinks they ought to do, even if it's based on what Ezra thought they should do. And then other people would make the statement because there is a unique Hebrew word that's used in both, well, in Ezra 10, the word to put away and the word for marriage. Some commentators would say, well, these weren't really legitimately married wives. These were like the under-the-table wives, if you will. These were the concubines of these men, and they had picked up these sexual partners in, in Babylon and the surrounding nations, and they just needed to put those away. You can make that point, but whatever the situation is here, as I said at the beginning, I think I said in, in uh, we talked about narrative text, we cannot take a narrative text, a description in Scripture, and make it a prescription for my life unless I see some kind of corresponding precept, right? I can't take a description and make it a prescription, something I'm supposed to do, unless I can find a precept that's clearly stated. And here is a description of people putting away their wives because they'd married foreign wives who had other gods. That was the concern of Deuteronomy, at least, and seemed to be the concern of the people in the post-exilic period here before Ezra. But you cannot take that as a norm for you to divorce your spouse if they're not saved, don't have the same spiritual foundation as you, because we have a clear precept that says just the opposite in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So we have a description, a narrative text telling us something that I cannot turn into a prescription for me to follow. Do you follow that? Okay. Because I've heard many people come to my office wanting a divorce, and those that have been to Sunday school, sometimes they point at Ezra chapter 10. And then I point at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I say, I win, because this is a clear precept of Scripture. All right, good enough? Nehemiah. Authorship. As I said, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. They were linked initially. Nehemiah, a lot of first-person memoir in the book, he is certainly speaking from his own life here. So either it's his memoirs being incorporated into Ezra's work, and that may be a good way to put it, that we at least have Nehemiah as a contributor in this book with Ezra as a compiler, and that is simply a guess, and only because, as I said, that's the external tradition as far back as we can go, and it seems like Ezra would be the perfect person to write this. He's in the right time frame. He's the first person in the first half of it, and and the key player even in the book of Nehemiah, and his stuff is even quoted in the second half of the book in Nehemiah, and he was a scribe, so that makes sense that he would be the compiler of this information. 
the main concept of the book, is walls. The walls of Jerusalem, that is. The key chapter is six. How good we are to keep these numbers the same. Ezra 6, Nehemiah 6. In Ezra 6, the temple foundation, the altar was built. They could start their worship again. You could have the Feast of Tabernacles and the daily sacrifices. In Nehemiah 6, the walls were rebuilt. Now, I kept giving you that little sliver of the walls that, that surrounded the city of David, the old Jebusite city. But what we flew past last time was the expansion that took place during the southern kingdom. And one of the biggest building projects was during Hezekiah's period. So you can see the shaded color, and I'm colorblind, but is it red on the right side there? Red, the city of David, and then you see that middle section. Milo usually describes the steps that go from the lower city of David up to the toward the Temple Mount. And Ophel, the another name for that middle section, not the steps, but the region, and then all the way up to the temple. At the time of Solomon, that's what we had in terms of the walls. Well, you see that other section. What is that? Green or brown? Green. That over there is the expansion of Hezekiah. We didn't even have time to really talk about it. I think we mentioned it quickly. Hezekiah's tub, tunnel. You remember the Gishon Spring going through the wall when they were surrounded? We didn't even get into that story, but you'll see that mark there too. All of this was during Hezekiah's expansion. That, by the time Nebuchadnezzar came, is the city he was up against, at least the walls. Now, there was houses outside of the walls, but that's what he had that around the green and the red section. Nehemiah comes back, and at least the best we can figure, but based on what we can figure out in terms of archaeology, he rebuilt these temples, an expanded wall around the Temple Mount, and that was important because that was the big project of Ezra, but the walls that descended and went all around the city of David. Now, the other walls there I'm showing you are the Turkish walls, that if you go there today, those are the walls that are still there. If you go take the Rampart Walk, if you go to Israel with us, you'll walk around the whole city on the whatever color that is. What color is that? You can't tell either, can you? Whatever. That's not brown, let's call it. That, those are the modern walls today. The modern walls of the ancient city. So this is the rebuilding of the, of the walls of Jerusalem. And there's a little line, dotted line around the bottom. We'll talk about that if I have time, the prayer walk of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the outline, very simple. Chapters 1 through 7, the walls are rebuilt. Chapters 8 through 13, there's a spiritual reform. And that's a good, good thing. Hopefully that is a good pattern. God allows us some success in our projects, and then we... Make sure our hearts are in step with him. Though it's not as good of a reform as you would hope. But we'll talk about the reform of Nehemiah here in a second. Jerusalem walls were built, chapters 1 through 7. Spiritual reform, chapters 8 through 13. That's the simplest outline you'll ever get. Time frame. Nehemiah starts off, he's a cupbearer to the the Persian king, Artaxerxes, in 445 BC. That, by the way, is 13 years after the divorce episode in Ezra 10. So we've had some time in between. Ezra's still there in Jerusalem and Nehemiah is in Persia in the Babylonian old Babylonian haunt in Mesopotamia. So in 4, 445, the parenthetical section of Ezra 4, as I said, refers to this time. So that forecast as Ezra, of course, is writing after all this stuff takes place. He, before he talks about the temple foundation being laid in chapter 6, he talks about this parenthetical section. So if you're looking at this chart on the front side of your worksheet, what you've got here is Nehemiah down in the bottom here. I've given you a date. 444 is when he's going to go back. But in 445, he's working as the cupbearer to the king, which is not a job I would want, by the way, right? You've got to make sure that there's no poison in the cup by you being the guinea pig. So he's basically like a bodyguard, secret service in the kitchen. All right, so that's the time frame. 
And Artaxerxes' reign, remember, goes on to 424. So it keeps going. It's, it goes on off the page. But this is the period that we have, this parenthetical section of Ezra 4. Now, some building starts as he begins to talk through that period of Artaxerxes and even Xerxes' opposition. The building has started not just on the temple. It started on the city and the walls. But Artaxerxes halts it all because he gets complaints that this is a project that's going to be, you know, bad. It's going to, there are upstarts, they're rebellious. So Artaxerxes has it all put to an end because of complaints. And the enemies of Israel who complained took it upon themselves to destroy the walls and the gates. Whatever they had started and whatever they had started to accomplish, it's a big project to build those walls. They had had a setback. Artaxerxes did not command it to be torn down. He just halted the, the construction on it. So... That setback, as Ezra, and I'm sure he's watching the news there in Persia, and he wants to know what's going on as the book of Nehemiah starts, he laments and wants to go back. He, if you know the story there, he is the cupbearer, he's getting news about Jerusalem and the setbacks, and it's in ruins, and so he goes and asks if he can go back, and we have the final return to Israel led by Nehemiah that is allowed by Artaxerxes in 444. Let's keep going with this time frame a little bit. Nehemiah, at the end of the book, in chapter 13, returns to Persia, which I'm sure he had business to do there. He was a very important person in Persia, but he had led this return, and he goes back. And we know the date for this because he gives it to us in Nehemiah 13, 6 and 7. And it's a bad thing that happens when he's gone. But while he's gone, this was taking place, and I wasn't in Jerusalem, for it was for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, and you can do the math on that, I went to the king, and after some time, he doesn't tell us when, I asked leave of the king to come back to Jerusalem. So we have him coming back to Persia in um, 432. At least he's gone. He, he remains in, in, in uh, Jerusalem for a period of time that we don't know. And then the end of the book, the events of the end of the book, conclude in 425. So that's our time frame from 445 to 425. That's the time frame for our book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah's job. This is another example of career advancement in the Bible of godly people. A lot of them start at the bottom, right? Think of Joseph or Daniel. And I think you ought to look at your job. And if you're not advancing, not because you're a Tony Robbins or a Joel Olstein, but because you serve God and you want to do your work well, then you ought to wonder how your Christianity is playing out in the workplace. There's a whole series of books that have come out Christians are producing them, a team of guys, just about how our Christianity is supposed to be played out in our everyday jobs. Um, anyway, Colossians 3 is always a good reminder of this. We ought to be great employees. You ought to be a good employee. Um, and in everything, you ought to be obedient, not as an eye service kind of person when their eye is on you, not as a people pleaser. And there are a lot of those, a lot of Christians that are people pleasers, but we ought to do it with sincerity of heart because we fear God. Whatever we do, do your work heartily as to the Lord, not for men, knowing the Lord will from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance. Think about him. He's in one of the most important spots, just like Joseph was. He went from prison to the number two guy in the kingdom. And I know he said, well, he had some help from that dream interpretation gift he had. But he was respected, even in the jail, before any of that was happening, because he was put in charge of the prison because he was trustworthy. He had integrity. He worked hard. He did what he was supposed to. Daniel, the same way. And I know he also had some help from his... Uh, prophetic gift, but the idea of him being respected in his work. Nehemiah is the same way. Without any miraculous gifts, without any prophetic skill, he finds himself in a great spot, even though he had no advantages in terms of that, that nation. I don't know. That's just a sub side point. You ought to be doing well at your jobs, not because you're all into career advancement. That you, that you shouldn't care about that. You should just care about whether God's happy with your work, which doesn't mean you're a workaholic or you 
take every advancement you can take. Maybe you'd turn some of them down for the right reasons. His prayer life. A couple things about his prayer life. I, I just love this. I quote it all the time. You probably heard me quote it in a sermon. But Hebrews chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the king said to me, his king uh, Artaxerxes, what are you requesting? After he's so sad and he sees him sad and he said, what do you want? I just love this little phrase here, this little sentence. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, and he goes on to answer this question. He wants to go back to the city of his fathers, go back to Jerusalem. Here's a guy who's talking about praying between sentences. That is great. And not only that, that's why I wanted to remind you that little dotted line that goes around the south end of the city of David. He takes a three-day tour. He doesn't even tell anybody what he's doing. He goes almost in solitude. He takes a few people with him on the last day, but he just, I mean, you can imagine, praying for the city. He's taking an assessment. He's taking a, uh, you know, He's chronicling the needs of the gates and the walls. But here's a guy who is willing to go away, and I'm assuming prayer was a big part of that. I don't want to read too much between the lines, but he's willing to go on those long seasons of prayer and to get away to pray, and he's also praying between someone asking him a question and before he answers. I don't know, just impressed with Nehemiah's prayer life. A lot of opposition to the project. If you've ever read through Nehemiah, clearly that's a big part of the first part of this book. You, got, you meet guys like Sanballat and Tobiah. They were not helpful. When they heard the building of the wall, they were angry, greatly enraged. They jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? They sure seem to be working hard, right? Will they revive the stones out of these heaps of rubbish uh, and, and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yes, what are they, what are they building? If a fox jumps up on it, he'll break it down, their stone wall. Anything you want to do for God, particularly when God is involved in it, his good hand is on you, particularly when we do our spiritual projects for God, we should expect the kind of opposition, and we're getting it. I mean, it just came out in the news this week, one of our pastors at our pastor's meeting, websites, just just to find out where we're at in terms of our stance on homosexuality. I mean, just people lining these people up who are going to be faithful to the word just so they can attack them. I mean, you're going to see that kind of thing happening increasingly so. And if we have an ambition to plant churches or to make a difference in this world for Christ, we can expect the kind of mockery and opposition that uh, Nehemiah got. We're, We're building a church. That's what God has called us in the New Testament to do, not a set of walls, but we should expect the kind of opposition he got. They plotted together to come and fight. It's one thing to mock. It's one thing to induce fear. But now they're plotting to come against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. They're rebel rousers. Every time we get a phone call about a counseling situation, I'm mindful of the fact, and our pastors are mindful, okay, here, here are people just sometimes just calling to try and cause problems to get us on a recording to say something that they can go take to the press. These are the kinds of things that we expect in our day, and unfortunately, it's getting worse. Nevertheless, they had to set a guard up of protection. They had to be vigilant. They had to be thoughtful. They had to think strategically day and night. Chapter six, and you, the Jews, intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. This is what they were saying about him. You wish to become their king. They said that about Nehemiah. Nehemiah didn't want to become the king, right? Then I sent this to him and I said, no such thing as you say have been done. You are inventing them out of your own mind. You're just making all this stuff up. For they all wanted to frighten us. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. Again, a man of prayer, always looking, even when they're being attacked, God, I need to pray, strengthen me. And even when they're making up stories about them. And they will do that about us, increasingly so, as we seek to build God's church in the 21st century. But God had great favor on the project. The king granted me what I asked. Why? Again, here it is again, that phrase we saw so often in Ezra. We see it now in in Nehemiah. For the good hand of God was upon me. Chapter 2, verse 18. And I told them, of the hand of God that had been upon me for good. 
This is a great line. I just love that. I think I use that line a lot at the founding of Compass Bible Church. If you go way back to 2005 with me, I fed on these two books. It's very encouraging. God's good hand was upon us. God's favor on the project, chapter 6. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elu in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly on their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. All the mockery, all the opposition, all the fear-mongering, all the lying and making up stories about them. Here was God allowing them to build this thing in 52 days, to build the wall. Revival among the people. Second half of the book is all about that. They gathered as one man into the square of the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe. Now here he is. He's from the first book. Now we have him in this, this book. It all used to be one book. Ezra the scribe, he came and he was told to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. And they read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early in the morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. You see him in the construction of a modern stage, right? Nehemiah 8. And they read from the book of the law, the law of God clearly, and they gave it sense so that the people understood the reading. Again, scripture is key. It's pivotal in this revival among the people. Unfortunately, though, as I said, in the last chapter, things seem to go astray. Nehemiah is away. He returns from Persia, and this is what he finds. Foreigners were allowed on the Temple Mount. Tobiah, of all people, the biggest critic of the building of the wall, along with San, Sanballat, he is, he's given a place, a room in the worship center, because one of the people in the Israelite leadership said, he's related to me, and so he moves in. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 8, he says, I was very angry, Nehemiah speaks in the first person, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. I mean, it was kind of a Jesus clearing the money changers out moment for him, an angry clearing of Tobiah out of the temple. Offerings were neglected. Levites actually were becoming bivocational because they weren't, people weren't giving their offerings, and so they were out getting second jobs, and they weren't provided for. And in chapter 13, verse 11, he confronts the officials, and he says, why is the house of God being forsaken? People should give. And I gathered them together, and I set them in their stations. I said, no, we're going to make this work, and he has to come in. And in a very short period of time, these people had strayed from even giving the way they ought to. The Sabbath was ignored in that last chapter. Merchants were greedy for gain on the Sabbath. Now, remember, this hit a nerve with Nehemiah because he had learned that was exactly what caused the, the deportation to start with. That's what caused the Babylonian exile, was their greediness that they weren't willing to let the land lie fallow every seventh year. And now every seventh day, they couldn't shut down. They were doing their... Uh, selling and buying and waiting for people to go to the temple so they could do all that. And he gets angry at them. Verse 21, he, he says, I warned them. If you do so again, I love this, I will lay hands on you. There's a zealous preacher for you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Imposing figure, apparently. When he gets back from Persia, people start again marrying foreigners. Can you believe that? I mean, it was just a few decades earlier, we had this scene with Ezra and um, one of the things he throws in there is your kids don't even know Hebrew. They're speaking the language of your foreign wives. Nehemiah 13, verse 25 says, So I confronted them, and I cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. Now, we've come a long way from rebuking someone at this point. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons. I don't know if you should put that on your resume before you go to your next pastorate or not. But this is a zealous leader for God who's beating people up for their rebellion. 
Nehemiah is fighting an uphill battle. That's all I'm trying to tell you. In that last chapter, though he's doing all these things after his return from that Persian trip back to Persia, he's come back to Jerusalem now, it just is a sad scene. It didn't take long at all. We don't know how long that period of time that he was gone, but people are doing all kinds of things that he had told them not to do. I mean, here's the last line of the book, verse 31. And I know it seems like a good statement. Remember, O God, remember me, O God, for good. Like, remember the good things I did. I, I worked hard at this. You know, there's almost a, a sorrow in his voice about, but this place is falling apart. But remember me. Just know I, I tried really hard. I did my best. He was pained in this fight. And the problem is, again, as I said, these books, I think, are written, and I think the 13th chapter of Nehemiah is written to remind us this is not the fulfillment of all those promises that the prophets gave us as they talked about what was going to happen after the exile. For instance, think of Ezekiel 36, 27, 26, 27, when it talks about you got a heart of stone, you need a heart of flesh. God's going to replace that. I will put my spirit within you, and I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And not, and, and you'll be afraid your pastor might beat you up, right? No, you're going to do it because my spirit is moving you to do it. That that's not happening at this point in Israel's history. So yes, we have the fulfillment of God's promises, but we're not at all where God had promised he was going to take these people. Two great books for us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Ezra and Nehemiah. Thanks for the priorities that we see. Thanks for the opposition that in some ways encourages us because we know we're not alone. We think some strange thing is happening to us sometimes when we have encounters with negativity and opposition and people making up things about us. And Peter said we shouldn't be acting like this is a strange thing coming upon us. This is what Jesus dealt with. This is what all the apostles dealt with. This is what Ezra and Nehemiah dealt with. I mean, they were uh, living lives just like ours as they would try to do what is right. And yet the enemies, and they fought against them. The one advantage we do have, as I started tonight in my prayer, is the indwelling of the Spirit And I pray that those that are really converted here know what it is to not have to have the threat of physical or bodily harm motivate us to read our Bible or to share our faith or to spend some time in prayer. We want to keep your word because your spirit is within us, moving us to keep your laws and your precepts. Thanks for the giving of the spirit. We know we got a long way to go because one day our flesh will be redeemed and we'll have no obstacle from the flesh or the world or the devil. We look forward to that day. In the meantime, God, keep us strong. Keep us tight with you. Keep us walking with you very faithfully in this life. In Jesus' name, amen.